0: As our Scandinavian neighbours continue their love affair with nature and take to the slopes, hills and forests in their droves are we finally witnessing a change in Scotland's relationship to the great outdoors? Does a growing demand for owning and renting huts and cabins amid the coronavirus crisis mean we are at long last about to join our woodland cousins in embracing a pastime that has dominated their leisure activity for generations? And if so, why has it taken so long and what are the challenges for the hunting community in Scotland to open up our wild spaces and these getaway homes. I'm Sean Milne and welcome to the second episode of the Scotsman's Sustainable Scotland podcast where we look at the trends, the people and organisations moving the dial towards making Scotland a more sustainable country to live in. I'm joined by journalist Leslie Riddick, writer, broadcaster and documentary maker who among her many talents has a PhD earned through research comparing the cabin traditions of Scotland and Norway, and is author of the book Huts, A Place Beyond, which explores just why Scotland hasn't yet fully embraced the culture of hutting. And also Chris Ballance, director and campaigner with the Carbith Hutters Community Company, set up back in 2008 as part of what was described as a radical struggle, and included a rent strike and a mysterious burning down of huts, including his own property, before an eventual buyout was agreed, allowing the community to evolve into what it has become today. Hello, and welcome both. Thanks for joining us today.
1: How are you? Hi there. <laughs> yeah, fine in our virtual ways.
0: <laughs> now, I'm looking outside my window here. It's frozen solid with snow and slush. What is the appeal of our How did you guys get involved? You know, why would anybody in their right mind want to get involved in a community like this?
1: Why? Well, adventure. And see, like, when you say that, people think there's not an adventure plutering about in kind of half-frozen landscapes. There, there, there is. Up till now, I think, you know, COVID may have refocused people's minds on the everyday nature of little adventures around you and how that actually is what you live for, what you can do. In our minds, though, we've been led to believe that, you know, adventure is exotic. It's usually foreign. It's distant. <laughs> and you only get to do it every now and then. To me, that's why I started renting a hut, which is a bit of a long story, it's in the book, up in the Aberdeenshire Hills in the 19, late 1980s, simply because the idea of having a hut with no electricity, no running water, therefore no fridges, and the horror, the horror, no flushing loo, that actually posed a bigger adventure possibility to me than anything else I could do for 300 quid a year.
2: Yeah, there is an adventure in being self-sufficient like that because our normal life is a matter of, oh, it's cold, switch the heating on, everything is automatic and it's all very easy. Whereas when you're in a wooden hut and it is cold, snowy and slushy outside, there is a real satisfaction in being able to create your own heat in being able to sort up wood, put it on the stove and make yourself warm and be able to cook on it. That's an adventure in itself and that's very satisfying.
0: Is it a case though that most people these days are, you know, we're so used to the home comforts, you know, we've almost kind of fallen out of our understanding of how great nature can be. You know, is, is this really a way you can embrace it again? Is this, you know, is this why we're seeing an apparent growth of our thing here in Scotland? However modest.
1: I sort of actually don't buy this line at all now after 10 years, that it's kind of, let's beat up ourselves uh, because we just aren't embracing a culture. Let's be really blunt about this. It's impossible to get hold of land in Scotland. The end. That's the problem. You know, it's, it, when you look back in history, you discover not that uh, Hutting failed to start in Scotland, it just failed to survive in the main except Carbeth. And that's because people first of all, could hardly get their hands on land. Then were always tenants. Compared to Norway, 80% of hutters in Scotland are tenants and and rent the land. About 88% in Norway own the land. There's its own story. And thus, huts can be repaired. Um, They can be fixed at your leisure. They're secure. They can be handed on generation to generation. They don't fall to pieces for the want of somebody else's decision to invest in them. And, you know, that's the biggest problem here. And I think the uptick now of interest in hutting is because of community buyouts and discussion about how land is owned and an increasing ambition among Scots to have something even vaguely representing the normal that exists everywhere else at our latitude.
0: So you think then if we can enable people to build huts, be parts of these communities, then they will join communities like, like you did, Chris, way back when.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, is absolutely right, it is land ownership that's, that's the issue. But I think there has also been, things have gone in circle, because in the 50s and 60s, huts were, were very popular and there were hutting sites across Scotland. But then with a mixture of organised holidays like Butlins and foreign travel, All of a sudden, going to Malaga into the sun became much easier. By the end of the 70s, early 80s, hutting was in decline. I mean, I got my hut, my first hut, 30 years ago, and I bought it for a song because there are simply more huts on the market. at are more huts available than there were people lining up to take them. Whereas now, particularly since lockdown, that has changed. And I think people are looking much more for for getting outside and getting into nature. I mean, I got my first hut because I was in a small tenement flat surrounded by nothing but concrete and tarmac. And I saw an advert for a hut and I thought, hey, wow, a chance to get out into into the countryside and a chance to get a bit of fresh air and walk on grass.
0: I was curious to know, once you got your hut down there in Carbeth, was it everything you hoped it would be? I and mean, What kind of connection did it did it give you with nature? I mean, you said you wanted to do these walks and you know, you feel the grass under your feet perhaps, has it been worth it?
2: Absolutely worth it. You know, when I got my first hut, I was in a small tenement flat in Glasgow surrounded entirely by tarmac and concrete and being able to walk on grass, being able to get out, smell fresh air and even if you're not going for long walks every day and looking out at the trees all the time and you're surrounded by the countryside, and you've got that wee bit of land around you that you have a sense of control of, which you don't have when you're in a council flat in, in Glasgow.
0: That, that sounds fantastic. But, Leslie, when I started reading your book, you know, your opening chapter sounded more like a horror story in terms of pulling dead sheep from building and, and finding old of birds down the chimney. I mean, how did you come to go from getting hold of this place, a sanctuary, if you will, to falling in love with the whole concept?
1: Well, it- it is just, I mean, it maybe it's temperamental. I mean, to be honest, anybody who's a hutter uh, in Scotland is probably a bit odd, <laughs> I think, <laughs> because you're struggling. I mean, everywhere else, it's mainstream, see, uh, everywhere else. Let's just take the examples. In Norway, there are more than half a million huts. In Scotland, there are 500. That's the level of difference we're talking about for the po- populations that are almost exactly the same. So when you get to mainstream stuff, Everything works. You don't have, you know, Heath Robinson attempts to sort of get fridge arrangements, which I had, which I thought was hugely cunning, actually, by having anything that needed to be kept cold floating in a cattle trough with the cattle at the other end, (laughs) my bits floating around in a sort of protected end nearer me. That worked. But when you've got a system where people, uh, everybody is, is out having a hut, it's not that most of them actually have fridges. Still, the majority in Norway are electricity-free and uh, and water-free because their pipes would freeze if they if they had water given the temperatures. So it's all pretty hard, you know, hardcore. But their their huts are purpose-built. They build with logs. They build with wood. You don't get damp. They have central wood-burning stoves that radiate heat everywhere. Obviously, cold is not such a problem for them, keeping things cool. You know, they're sitting with snow half the year and they're more active in the winter because that's the time when people want to get out. And in many parts of Norway, the land freezes, so it's easier to get about. So what you have in Scotland is not typical of what hutting would be. And I really stress that in the book. I know that people reading through some of the sort of little adventures I had, which did include disposing of a dead sheep in the... um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in the lean to loo uh, which was a devil of a job to do and which I just stubbornly didn't ask anybody for any help on partly because no farmer would claim it as their sheep once it was deed you can but that's sort of par for the course um, it's once you decide you're going to be responsible for something and have the freedom it gives you you actually have to step up to the plate when things go wrong and blow me strangely enough you can, generally speaking, cope with it and learn to laugh later. The the big difference, I think, between what tends to happen here and tends to happen in Norway is it's a family gig in Norway. You know, practically, of course, there are the loners. um, But generally speaking, these are family huts, which have to work for kids. And for that reason, you know, the kind of (laughs) arrangements that I had would not be anybody's idea of normal or particularly acceptable, really. And that's what I'm Thinking that we need in in Scotland, so I'm just relating my experience because it was a bit of a laugh, but it's not what I imagine will make most people go. Mmm, coping with a dead sheep just hod me back.
0: And Chris, you had an entirely different kind of challenge because Carbeth, I think it's fair to say, is probably the original hutted community, as people would would regard it. But when you guys first formed a community, when you when you were living there together, you then faced this incredible rise in, in your rent prices, which you refused refuse to pay and end up going to a fairly infamous rental strike which ended up with all manner of standoffs for years and years, legal and even to, to homes like your own being burned down to to the ground. I mean, have things changed and can you tell us a little bit about that particular period in terms of it doesn't seem to have put you off?
2: No, not well. It takes a lot to put a, a real hutter off a hut. Firstly, briefly follow up on Leslie's dead sheep, slightly I can remember opening a drawer in a hut when we arrived one time, discovering that a, a mouse had given birth, and there was a lovely, wee family of mice in my warm pullovers. And some people would say, ah, other people look at that and say, yeah, that's natural, that's great. Um, I'll not use that drawer again for a few months. You know, part of being in a hut is getting used to nature, getting used to the fact that actually you are borrowing this bit of land off the mice and it's theirs, they were there before you and they'll be there after you. The difficulties I think began because of a lack of communication with the landlord and when there were threats that some people would be thrown off the land and when there were threats that the rents were going to be increased significantly. And when all of this happened without any real explanations or any real communications between hutters and landlords, we took objection and um, started this rent strike, which eventually led to us buying the land on a commercial mortgage. So it wasn't supported by any public agencies or anything like that. We managed to pay for it and we're paying the mortgage off at the moment. But it was a difficult time with the rent strike. It was also a very inspiring time because we created a sense of community by having people all working to the same aim. And all of a sudden, groups of Hutters who had previously not had very much to do with each other, started coming together for fundraising dances, for meetings, for events, and even for marches and protests. And we created a sense of community. And that was really exciting. And I think when you've got a large group of people who've got a strong interest in common and something to work towards, something to fight towards, then you get the sense of you, you get a community growing and forming and that was um that was really inspiring um so times were difficult yeah having having your hut burnt down but actually the the main part of the rent strike for most of the years was really quite inspirational the way that you can draw a community together by having a common goal
1: i
0: guess the reason i'm asking these questions are about Leslie's challenges with with the sheep, your own challenges in terms of the the campaign and what happened to your home. And the very fact is, as you say, it takes a particular person who'd like to live in a structure like this without, you know, the home comforts that you might get. But over the the years, it's taken a long time for more action to be taken. I I, I was reading up about the the Carnock Woods project in Fife, and I was really surprised to learn that that was the first kind of community of its kind for seventy years, you know. How far along the road have we gone since you know the Carbeth campaign to where we are now, or if we haven't progressed very far, what is it going to take to make all this you know become common as it is in say Norway, Leslie? Perhaps perhaps you've got a view on that.
1: Well, it's it's going to need land reform, bluntly. It's going to need a, a change to even. Uh, For example, woodlands, because currently uh, you get an exemption for certain parts of inheritance tax by buying woodlands. So any wee woodlands that people see around the place are snaffled up quickly by wealthy folk who are trying to dodge their inheritance tax. The Forestry Commission, the whole way, you know, once you start to peel this back, it's a big, big issue. Because the way that we have forestry in Scotland is, generally speaking very dense Sitka spruce that nobody would want to have a hut within. Uh, They're not natural forests, they're plantations in that respect. They're they're fenced and they're locked up. I mean, the Forestry Commission has has now got a mission to uh, start to accommodate people, but traditionally in Scotland, that's meant the day-tripper, really. And the idea that forests could be places for leisure is kind of weird here. Whereas it's exactly what happens in every other country at our latitude, that forests which are owned by tens of thousands of people, not a couple of monolithic owners, will will just sell a patch within woodland and that's where you set up your own individual hut. That's how it happens everywhere else. We are so far from that, you know, so regrettably far from that. Um, so the first thing, really, I think has got to be the stoking of appetite because unless people really get what they're missing and to me they're missing an extraordinary sort of anchoring outlet somewhere that means that you can you know get get away from all the pressures of working life and city experience by getting out of the city not out of your head which is basically I think got a lot to do with Scotland's very high rates of drug and alcohol consumption and misuse, you need an, an outlet. But people haven't even got the idea that that could be there because it's not in the framework of thinking because this is how it's I been. So I, it's grand that there is a couple of new projects actually starting around the place, but even the planners that are dealing with it are kind of trying to get their heads around what feels to them all wrong. And that's also because when we came out of the Second World War, the Town and Country Planning Act acted to just knock basically any attempts at hutting, which were pretty vibrant at the time, right on the head. Because it said, we want to make sure that the country never runs out of food, which it nearly did in the Second World War. So we give the country to the farmers and development happens in the city and ne'er the twain shall mix. And that um, erred against the possibility of hutting in the landscape, Throw in the empty glen kind of aspect of Scotland where people have been cleared pretty much from all sorts of areas you might want to have huts in and locked forests. And you've got a really, really hostile environment for people to do what's normal. And final thing to say is the net of all of that is most Scots can't afford to go on holiday in their own country because the cost of accommodation has gone sky high. This is such a beautiful place and there's a lot of wealthy people coming in who can afford the, the cost of uh, a very expensive self-catering cottage for a week. Everybody else at our latitude is taking themselves out of that competition by having a hut to go to that costs you an out.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think we have stoked the appetite now, and I think we must mention Reforesting Scotland and their excellent Thousand Huts campaign, which has raised awareness, and of course, Leslie, your book, in itself as a part of that campaign and again is is helping to stoke the the interest in huts and certainly at Calbeth we've seen a huge increase in people wanting to come out and get a hut I and mean, it's far more than they can cater for so that the interest is there but the key problem as you say is access to the land and then once you have the land itself the stipulations that are put over it by The 1947 Town and Country Planning Act, which was specifically, the theory goes, designed to stop people from the east end of London going to the nice gentrified areas of the countryside around London and um, making it look a bit working class. We just need now to take the final step of um, reforming how we use land and how we see land in Scotland and how we see our access to land and how we see people, whether we see that people ought to have access to the land of the country they live in.
1: This is the sound of a revolution taking place in Jim's house. In the cupboard under the sink, Jim's smart meter is silently working away, helping Britain's energy system get greener, working towards using more wind and solar power and less coal. So even when Jim's only doing the housework, he'll be doing his bit for the planet too. Join the quiet revolution. Ask your energy supplier for a smart meter. Eligibility may vary. Consumer action required.
0: How does somebody like me, for instance, go about getting a hut, getting that land, facing down the planners, negotiating with landowners, whatever the case may be, what needs to happen to make it accessible to the populace?
2: Yeah, it's a big question, isn't it? Um, Personally, like the idea of groups of people coming together to create hutting sites more than the individual person having one hut scattered here and there. I think that, maybe this is because of Carbeth, which is a large site with 170 huts. I see hutting as being a community thing and something which draws people together and something which makes it um, easier for us to relax and socialize with each other, more than somewhere that you go to escape from other people and escape from, the rest of the world. You go there to escape from your work and to escape from your normal daily pressures. But uh, I think you go to the site to, to socialize with people. And therefore, what we need to do is to enable groups of people to buy small areas of woodland, persuade the forestry commission to set aside areas of woodland for it. They're that moving half a, half a millimeter at a time in that direction. But there's a long, long way to go, and um, the public pressure will play a part, but it needs to do it quicker. So, the answer, Sean, really is um, podcasts like this help. Anything which moves the agenda forward and anything which emphasizes the need for land reform, ne- the emphasis emphasizes the need to break up the larger states and it is a nonsense that so small a number of people own so much of our land you know the more that that happens the better but that's a big question and um, landowners don't relinquish their control of the land easily
0: Leslie, are you hopeful that campaigns like Thousand Huts and conversations like this will in fact see you know Scotland come into light when it comes to Huts do you think the real... No! no.
1: No, I mean, because we can talk to blinking doomsday. You know, I may just have a temperamental problem here, but I don't want to just keep talking about stuff, you know. And of course I see there's been progress. Of course there has been. And of course the Thousand Huts thing's great. It is. And there are new pilot sites. That's all Fandabadosi. But, you know, from 1999, when the Carbeth Hutters Brave stand... Forced the Scottish Parliament to actually commission some research work to try and count how many huts there were in Scotland. A guy, Hugh Gentleman, did research then, and I think there was about 600 huts. In all probability, there are fewer than that now. That's what, 20 years later. So, you know, in the meantime, also, the, the number of landowners in Scotland has actually got smaller. There are fewer people owning the land in Scotland today than in 1872. So, you know, the thing is, it's great. We can talk and we have aspirations and we can pinpoint a few things. That's not good enough anymore. I mean, what has to happen is there has to be some systematic thinking, and it will take quite a lot of thinking because people are used to exclusion. They're used to thinking beauty is empty. They're worried about what people will do on the land. The dirty camping thing has got people flummoxed and and fearful of their own folk. There's many barriers to overcome, but they only get overcome if there's any kind of will behind it. I'd like to see people organising in all the council areas of Scotland to try to get a specific push on a landowner, a council and a site that gives a chance to move forward. But apart from that, I think probably when it isn't going to interfere too much with COVID or the move towards independence, there needs to be a new political party set up to push simply for land reform. Because unless there's one party with that name on the tin, it just keeps falling off the edge of everything and doesn't get the profile it needs.
0: So a single political party to push for specifically land reform? Yeah. And do you think they would have a degree of success or would it just become another talking shop?
1: Of course, there's all these dangers, but you're asking how things ever happen. How things happen such that about a third or a quarter of Scotland changed hands in the years between, between 1918 and 21. Remarkable was the result of pressure applied by Crofter's parties in the Highlands, by all sorts of people organising politically by the Highland Land League, which scared the bejesus out of existing parties like the Liberal Party and prompted budgets that created death duties of 40%, all sorts of other duties and taxes on large landed estates, such that a lot of bits of land actually changed hands. And it was that period in the interwar period where farmers and smaller landowners got a hod of bits of land that then were the ones that tended to be the places that okayed hutters coming in. When you get diversity of ownership, you get diversity of use. So Of course, there's all sorts of dangers. Having political parties is the last thing I ever want to do with my time, but I'm not going to sit here and keep talking about this because I don't want to end my life with a worse concentration of this problem than I started it.
0: So what do we need to happen in? Do we need the government to say, here's some land that that can be used for it? Do we need the local authorities to do the same? Is it you know we have to persuade landowners or compel landowners owners to to give swathes of land across to this kind of activity? Is there a, a sort of moral responsibility, particularly given the explosion and issues with mental health and obviously the pandemic that we're seeing now? You know, is it at the point now is a real opportunity to make that change, or are we just you know wishing on a on a whim? I
2: think there's a general rule that communities are better look at looking after land and putting it to good use than individual people are. And so the more we can move the political agenda towards community ownership of land, we've got a long way in the islands on that one. So housing hasn't figured in local, in the land, sorry, housing hasn't figured in the island communities. But um, moving towards community ownership of land, I think is one step forward. It's not just about Rural land, you know, the, the access ordinary folks access to allotments for growing vegetables has decreased hugely as well. It really comes down to finding a way of getting ordinary folk to have the access to the land that they that is their right and their birthright.
1: And you can do, you know, the the Danes, for example, in Copenhagen have got a law and a allotment, allotments law that relates the number of allotments that have to be available. To the number of flats that don't have a private garden, and as a result, from memory, Copenhagen has something like 15,000 allotment sites, and Edinburgh has about a thousand. They're taken back in Scotland every time there isn't a panic, and they're given out in times of war. You know, we, we have a really marginal idea of people being on the land, just whichever way you want to look at it, and um. It it would need the push for legislative change that just generally loosens up land in the way I was outlining before. We need to get back to, would you believe, 1918 to 21. But in the meantime, we also need examples. So every council could have a pilot hut site. Every Forestry Commission plantation in each council area could offer that hut site. They could be working with development trusts in some of the most deprived communities to make sure that for once the last come first and have the bonding experience that Chris describes. It's all doable. It just has to get some kind of push on. And at the moment, it really seems the l- lowest priority to councils who have got massive financial problems and look at land as at least something they could potentially flog off to make some money.
0: Is the time now, Chris? Is this the, the moment whereby they can build a momentum to take forward the whole campaign?
2: Any time would be a good time to try and build momentum. I mean, I think COVID has made a lot of people aware of the need for for access to the countryside and that's obviously a good thing. It's not at the top of people's minds, as has been mentioned before, independence, COVID, health, things like that are are really at the top of the agenda at the moment. But ownership of the land has to be important. You know, if we're going to be an independent country, as I assume we are going to be within the next 10, 15 years, then who owns the land? And if it's not the people of Scotland who own the land, then what's the point of being independent? And in terms of health, access to the land, and survey after survey shows that uh, being able to get out into the countryside, being able to enjoy nature is really good for mental and physical health. So yeah, I'm absolutely behind the idea of um, campaigning as hard as we can. And that campaign is there, but it's, not up the most in people's minds at the moment, unfortunately.
0: Leslie, I'm really curious. You've, you've obviously explored our countries um, as part of your PhD and, and general interest here. How do they view situation in Scotland? Are, are they aware of it? Do, do you think we're, we're mad for for not following suit?
1: Um, they, don't, they don't know very much about Scotland and why would they? And they think it's extraordinary. I mean, when I go to visit my friends away up in uh, Hammerfest in the very north of Norway, they regularly want to see more pictures of, as they put it, These quaint houses you have that give all the heat to the outside walls, like fireplaces, they just can't understand fireplaces because it is not a good conductor of heat. And they can't understand why we ever built houses like that. And, you know, neither can I now, actually. So, yeah, they just think we're kind of quaint, weird, indoor and a bit daft. And when Norwegian uh, friends come over, you know, particularly in the summer, because they they manage to forage so much from nature, from often so little whereas scotland is just hutching with stuff you know we're hutching with rivers we're with fish we're hutching with with berries that we don't forage we're hutching with stuff and and yet we're not connecting with it and they find that absolutely extraordinary i mean every time any of the norwegian pals come over here especially in the summer they're straight out with a blooming tupperware box before you can stop them you know and they'll spend cheerfully hours trying to collect stuff that everyone else is driving past so yeah they think we're weird so chris tell me this who
0: drives us now is it is it we the people is it the politicians is it somebody else how do we get to the point whereby you know it isn't unusual to have a hut as the opportunities are there and we all enjoy it
2: well ultimately decisions are political decisions relating to how we get access to land but political decisions are made because people put pressure on politicians. And politicians, at the end of the day, do what they realise is going to make them popular and is going to win them votes. So, yes, it has to be a matter of, of popular campaigning for land reform, for access to the countryside, and for, um, for, for more groups
1: of people to be able to
2: have help.
0: And final question, Leslie what is a manifesto for change?
1: You know, there's, at the moment, there's also a lot of uh, people who are very hostile to second homes in Scotland. This has got uh, all mixed up because second homes, it's the type of second homes we have, which currently are the existing housing stock that local people need. Everywhere else, um, huts are additional to existing homes. They don't take them away. In Norway, they actually put in the title deeds that a first home has to be a first home forever and has to be sold to someone else who uses it that way it can become a second home, and vice versa there's all sorts of ways we could tackle many of the problems that especially in rural communities, are really knackering rural communities but what's not causing problems here essentially is the desire among city people to get out it 's the fact there's so few places for them to go that it it just drives the prices of the few houses that there are beyond the reach of locals. So, this awful sort of uh, vicious circle we've got into has to be broken. Otherwise, we will have completely depopulated high- highland and rural island areas, which are absolute honeypots for foreign visitors, which Scots cannot compete with and yet cannot be serviced properly because nobody can afford to live there. If that's what you want, rock on, do nothing, shrug. If you just don't want that to become the future of Scotland, then somebody needs to put a foot in the door.
0: Why well, I, for one, look forward to having just the opportunity to get out and try the huts. Meantime, sadly, that's all we've got time for. A massive thanks to today's guest, writer, broadcaster, and all-round good egg, Lizzie Widdick, and hutter extraordinaire, Chris Ballance for the hugely enjoyable and thought-provoking conversation. Thanks also to producer Morgan McIntyre for looking after us so very well. We'll be back soon with another Sustainable Scotland podcast. Before then though, if there are any issues that you'd like to see us cover in future episodes, let us know by tweeting at The Scotsman and subscribe to Sustainable Scotland wherever you get your podcasts.